Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 11, and I'm going to read through verse 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Have you ever had a visitor that you were really excited to have come into your home? Maybe that's going to happen for you in the next several days with Christmas around the corner. Uh, Maybe it's a friend from years ago that calls you and mentions that they're going to be passing through town and would like to stop and have a chat to catch up. And maybe a genuine joy to have a visitor stop by and to spend some time with you around the holidays. But the joy is multiplied when that visitor decides to make your home their home. When the community that you love and you spend time with, that you've invested in deeply, um, becomes also their community. Maybe not living in the same house, but they want to be around you. They want to be around you so much that they would uh, go to the hassle of moving, of finding a new job, of finding a new house to live in, simply because they value your relationship. And as we continue through this Advent season, we're looking at a picture of Jesus, pictures of Jesus as he laid out in the Gospels. So we were in Matthew last week, John preached out of Mark, which is confusing because John is the fourth gospel, and so when I said that just now, you know what I meant. John preached out of Mark, and this week we're in Luke, and the next week we'll be in John on Christmas Eve. Um, We've considered, so far, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus walking on the water, and then last week, Jesus healing the leper um, who came to him and asked to be made clean, and now we're in Luke. And Luke tells us this story about Jesus, and we ask, what do we learn about who Jesus is from this story? This story isn't terribly well known. It's something that we would probably expect that Jesus would do. Um, And so, this is one of those stories where Jesus raises someone or heals someone um, that all kind of get muddled in our minds. And sometimes the details, right? Well, remember when Jesus raised this person, this, per- no, this person? And so we've come to, if you've read the Gospels before, you come to an understanding that this is something that seems relatively commonplace for Jesus. Although when we consider the details more deeply, it's anything but commonplace for our day-to-day lives. So Jesus tells this story to us, or Luke tells this story to us about Jesus, rather, And again, at the heart of this story, right at the beginning, uh, right in the middle, at verse 13, we learn that Jesus has compassion on a widow who lost 
her son. So I want to consider what's written here and what the, the, the author of the gospel, Luke, wants to communicate to us as we consider uh, these few verses. So three things that will guide our time together this morning in this passage. First is the compassion of Jesus. Again, we see that directly in verse 13. Jesus has compassion on the widow. The second is the comfort that Jesus brings, the comfort that Jesus offers. And then third, the condescension of Jesus. And we'll talk about that and explain that a bit towards the end of our time. But the first thing that we need to consider is the fact that Jesus had compassion on this widow. So the compassion of Jesus. So some of the details here we just have to consider uh, a little more closely because they're not exactly explicit, exactly what is happening. Um, but, but when we look at the text, we understand when Jesus comes to this town called Nain, he comes upon a funeral. That's what's happening. They're carrying uh, this young man who has now died. They're carrying him out of, of the place or the home uh, where he died. We learn that there's a considerable crowd. Now, we don't know why the young man died. We don't know what transpired that led to his death, but we do know that he is dead. The text is clear. This young man has, in fact, died, and the other detail that we know to be true is that there's a great crowd around. Now, this would be common. Um, In most instances, it was customary when someone died in a town that people would come together, the entire town, usually the entire community, would come together to mourn with the person uh, who who, uh, who the loved ones who had lost their, the, the deceased. And funerals were therefore typically quite large and made up of people who may not have been, again, terribly close to them, but were part of the community around them. And they would come together and they'd weep with those who weep. They would mourn with those who mourn. And so it probably wouldn't be much of a stretch to suggest that Nearly, if not everyone who lived in Nain was present for this event. Almost everyone who lived in that community, there's a small community, Nain doesn't get mentioned very often in the Bible. There's a small community um, in Judea, but it would be likely that most people were were there. Most people were present. And as the funeral is then in progress, as they're carrying the young man out, Jesus sees the widow, who is the mother of the deceased, and the text says that in verse 13, that he had compassion on her. Jesus then is moved to action because of the compassion that he has for the widow. He's moved to action by speaking to her. He's moved to action by speaking to the young man who is dead. And we see here that he raises the young man, he resuscitates him. In the widow's loss, Jesus is near to her, not just physically, he is near to her physically, but he understands the emotion that she's feeling and has compassion on her. Last week when John preached in uh, in, in Mark chapter 1, John showed us that there was pity. That's the term that's used there. Or compassion could be translated the same way. Jesus had pity on the leper. 
and it moved him to action. He healed the leper. Jesus does not leave people in their pain. Jesus acts on on behalf of those who are brokenhearted, those who are undergoing difficulty, those who are undergoing pain and hardship. King David says in Psalm 34, 18, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Consider that. It's on the screen. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He's near. He understands. He is close to those who are suffering, those who are in the midst of difficulty, those who are mourning and have experienced great loss in their lives. But he's just not, ne- he's not just next to them. It's not just a proximity thing, both either in emotion or in, in, in a physical sense. But look at how the psalmist says that he acts. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. He acts. He saves the crushed in spirit. To feel crushed is a specific emotion. To feel crushed, I don't know what we would call it, but I think that we know what it is. To feel crushed is a specific emotion. I'm sure there's a good word for it, um, but I'm, I'm, I, I have two emotions. This, uh, John said something similar last week, but it's mo- my emotions are like um, no emotion, and kind of frustrated, and then sort of happy. Like, that's the range of my emotions as, as a human being. Um, and sometimes I fall outside of that range, which is good. But the, the idea here is that being crushed, and I know that I've felt this emotion, even though I can't quite identify what it's called, To be crushed is a, in fact, specific emotion. And maybe you've felt that way even recently. And if I'm being honest, I think I've even felt that way this week. Being crushed is a specific emotion. To be crushed is to have personal sin or the sin of others or the effects of sin come to bear so heavily on you that you feel like you will internally collapse under the weight. I think that's what the psalmist is talking about here. To feel the effects of sin so heavily, whether it be your sin, the sin of others, or just the reality of sin in the world, to feel those things so heavily that you would feel as though they were such a weight upon you that they would threaten to crush you, to cause you to collapse internally. Friends, the good news of the promise of Psalm 34, 18, and what we see here in this text this morning, is that when you are in that position, the Lord is in fact near to you. And not only is he near to you just in word, he is, in, he is near to you because he intends to act on your behalf. He intends to act on your behalf. Now, contrast that 
The Lord is here near to those who mourn, but contrast that with the opposite. The proud and the arrogant do not feel crushed. They do not feel crushed because in their pride, they believe that somehow they can hold it all together. That they can hold or stave off that emotion of feeling crushed or the difficulties of sin. They can handle it themselves. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, in the Beatitudes, He said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Comfort comes to those who mourn. Comfort comes to those who mourn. The reality of death and the reality of sin that brings death in our world means that we will, in fact, in this life, mourn. We mourn when a loved one passes like the widow mourns in this passage. But we must, as Christians, understand and realize what that is a result of. That is a result of sin in our world. Death is a result of sin. Salvation comes to those who know that they are sinful. and They know that the world is under the curse of sin. And mourn over that sin. Mourning over that sin. Being broken over that sin. Again, sometimes committed by us, sometimes committed by others, sometimes just the simple reality of sin in our world. People often say things like, I'm not perfect. But that's not mourning over sin. That's just giving a simple acknowledgement to sin. There's no mourning that comes with it. They say, I'm not perfect, but they're not grieved by it. In fact, sometimes people use the words, I'm not perfect, or nobody's perfect, to justify their sin. To think to themselves, this sin doesn't really affect me or anyone else, because everybody does it. That is not the heart of the one who is broken by sin. The one who mourns over sin. It is not the one that the psalmist writes about in Psalm 34.18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Salvation comes to those who genuinely grieve over their sin and desire to be free from it. Those who do not grieve over their sin see no need to be saved from it. The widow in this passage mourned the loss of her son. It wasn't necessarily because of her sin, or because of his sin, or because of anyone else's sin, but because of the world that she lived in was under the curse of sin. Death is a reality in the world we live in. Because we live in a world that is deeply affected by sin. But we're told, and this is why, Jesus has compassion on her. Jesus has compassion on those who are deeply affected by sin. Who mourn over the reality of sin in their lives and the lives of their loved ones. The the reality that sin exists in the world. Jesus knew that the curse of sin had left her spirit 
crushed. But he was there to bring comfort. Jesus was there to bring comfort. This is the action that Jesus takes. And that's the second point here this morning. The comfort of Jesus. The comfort of Jesus. Now Jesus offers three simple words in verse 13. We are told that he has compassion on her and then he speaks to the widow. He says, do not weep. Now that, that seems a bit abrupt. <laughs> you show up to a funeral and you go to the, the, the closest living relative and you say, don't cry. That doesn't quite, that seems a little insensitive. If you were in the widow's shoes, you'd wonder why you shouldn't cry. Why should I not weep, Jesus? My, my only son has died. I am a widow. That means my husband has died. I have experienced great loss in my life. Why should I not die? But what we need to note here is that it's the words alone that bring comfort to the woman, but the action that Jesus takes. He doesn't just say, there, there, don't cry. He says, don't weep. And then he turns around and speaks to the young man who's deceased. And he says to him, young man, I say to you, arise. And then verse 15, and the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. We shouldn't gloss over that statement. As we tend to do, because again, this is one of those stories that we're accustomed to Jesus, things that we expect Jesus to do in the Gospels. And again, sometimes these stories where Jesus raises someone or heals someone begin to get all muddled in our mind because they become or feel so commonplace for Jesus to do. But we shouldn't gloss over the fact that Verse 15 says, and the dead man sat up and began to speak. We shouldn't gloss over it. I haven't ever seen that happen. This event is probably completely outside of our experience. So what we're seeing here and what Luke is communicating to us is that Jesus interrupts a funeral an already incredibly culturally insensitive thing to do. We, we can imagine, right? We can imagine being part of a funeral and then some guy stops everything and goes up to the mourning individuals closest in relation, tells them not to cry, and then turns to the person in the casket and tells them to get up. It sounds closer to a viral, cringy YouTube video than it's something you'd expect from Jesus. Not only is it hard to think about this scene unfolding without feeling incredibly uncomfortable, but then, according to Jewish custom, if Jesus went up and touches the casket like he does, he would be unclean. He would be 
in essence, in contact with a corpse of a dead person, which according to Jewish law, would render him unclean. Much like John talked about last week with the leper, Jesus reaches out and touches the leper with his hands. To touch a leper would render you unclean, according to Jewish law. And then you'd have to go through the process of being cleansed and being declared clean. But Jesus does it again. He puts his hand on the casket. But just like with the leper, Jesus is not afraid that he will be declared unclean. Because it's only through his touch, the leper and the dead man, that they will be restored. He knows that he's the only one who can offer genuine comfort because he's the only one that can heal the leper. And he's the only one who can restore this young man to life. So if there was any question about Jesus' cleanliness after this event, they'd say, but you came in, in, in contact with a, a corpse and so you're unclean. And then Jesus would have to say nothing more than like, you mean that guy who's walking around and talking? There's, there, there's no question any, anymore if that would render Jesus unclean. But it's only through the power that Jesus brings that this young man is, stands up and begins talking and starts walking. The same is true for the leper. You came in contact with the leper. You mean that man who is free of leprosy? Now, I want to tie this in with the comfort that Jesus brings because of the compassion that Jesus shows to this widow. Again, the compassion is the fact that he's near to her. He understands what she's going through. He comes to her and he speaks to her. But the comfort that Jesus offers is comfort that only Jesus can offer. Because only his words in this instance, do not weep, carry the weight that they do. This is not disconnected from us. But if you and I were to say to someone who had just lost a loved one, do not weep, we don't contain or have the same power that Jesus does to give a good reason not to. Jesus brought the widow comfort, and that's a comfort that only he can bring. Here's King David again in Psalm 51, 17. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Why does David say this? David says this because when we mourn, when we see the realities of sin, when we see the fact that sin, our sin, others' sin, the curse of sin in the world at large, when we see the realities of sin around us, we mourn, but we mourn because we long to be relieved. We mourn because we want those things to be taken from us. We long to be made whole and for the people around us affected by these things to be made whole. And it's only Jesus who can offer us relief and comfort in our mourning because it is only in Christ and it is only Him who can fully and finally deal with with sin. Our mourning is always a result of sin. It's always because of sin and its effects in our life. But there is only one person 
who can deal with sin, and that's Jesus Christ. And so when the young man in this passage gets up and begins to speak, we're to realize that Jesus, and only Jesus, can offer true comfort. Because it is Jesus, and only Jesus, that brings true and lasting relief from the effects of sin. Sin that leads to death. Death is the foremost effect of sin. And Jesus, because of his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, has power over death. In Jesus' death, he put death to death. He disarms death entirely. He deals with sin and therefore he deals with its effects. And so Jesus is the only one who can offer true comfort And when we as people offer comfort to others, we must offer them the comfort that Jesus brings as the only one who can deal with the sin that that we're mourning. The sin that we know has led to or will in fact lead to death. Only Jesus, only Jesus can deal with sin. He has disarmed death entirely by dealing with sin. He removes the teeth from the dog. And now the dog of death is all all bark and no bite. And in this life, we walk through this life, and death still a reality and exists around us, but it's like a, a dog who just gums us a little bit on the arm while we walk through this life. And it can't clamp on, it can't draw blood, it can't pull us down to the grave. Jesus tells the widow, do not weep. And then he shows her why. Friends, when we offer comfort to others in our world who are being crushed by the weight of sin, their sin, others' sin, the sin that just merely exists in the world, when they're being crushed By sin, and we seek to offer them comfort, that comfort can never be separated from Jesus. Because He's the only one who can can deal with its effects. And so when Jesus says to the widow, do not weep, He's not just saying, there, there, don't cry. It's It's a don't weep because I'm about to show you that the cause for weeping is soon to be dealt with. It's the trajectory of Jesus' life here. He's saying, I'm going to do a thing by going to the cross and dealing with death by my death that, that will give you reason for eternity not to weep. And this is the, the great scene that we see in Revelation 21, 3 and 4. Where the Apostle John records, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. 
Jesus is giving this woman and the crowd in Nain a glimpse of what eternity will look like because he has the power over death. He has the ability to deal with sin and its deadly effects. To know comfort is to know Christ because to know Christ is to know that all these things are being put in subjection to him, including death. It would not be comforting for you to show up at a funeral and tell the mother of the deceased to stop crying. But it is comforting for Jesus to do it. Because Jesus has dealt with death. He's put death in his sights. He's bearing down on it here in Luke chapter 7. And he was about to put death down. He was about to put death in the grave. A taste of its own medicine. And so if we want to know the comfort that Jesus offers, know that his words, do not weep, are not a mere platitude. It's not just words. It's not just the thing that you say when you show up and interrupt a funeral. He is near to those who mourn, yes. But he also works salvation for them by taking sin and death off the board. This is the comfort of Jesus. That brings us to the third thing that we need to consider here, and that's the condescension of Jesus. The condescension of Jesus. Now, that word I picked because it's a C, because we have compassion, comfort, condescension. But I want this this word matters. It's meaningful for us as a church. Because we have to put ourselves in a position of humility. If we are called someone condescending, it usually means that they're treating us like a child or as an inferior, and we don't like that. But if we sort of take our own personal emotional baggage out of that word, it just means coming down from a higher position to be at their level. And when I teach my kids, I condescend to them. That sounds bad because, again, we've imported a bunch of extra meaning into this word, but I come down to their level. I patronize my kids. That's what I do. I'm their dad. The, the word patronize comes from the Latin for father. That's what, that's what we do. I treat my small children like a father should treat their children, or at least I, I try. And I'm not doing it to be mean. I'm doing it because it's an effective way to communicate with a five-year-old. Jesus came down from a position of superiority. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus wasn't coming down to say, to, to, to be with us because he was first like us. He came down to be like us because he was first not like us. Because what made him holy and different from us was the thing that we desperately needed to be. And the only way to be made that thing was for him to come down from a position of superiority to be with us. Jesus came down from heaven, and that's why we, what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate the reality that Jesus humbled himself. He was in heaven, and he sets aside his heavenly glory. He came to earth to be with us. Emmanuel means God with us. 
And that's condescension. Jesus coming from there, a position of glory and majesty and might, to a stinky, gross stable. The God of the universe dwelling among his creatures. And so we're told in this passage that when the young man is raised from the dead, that fear seizes everyone. Verse 16. Fear seized them all. And then they glorified God. They didn't know what to make of what just happened. And we wouldn't either, likely. This man who was dead a moment ago is now sitting up and speaking in the middle of his own funeral. This is not an everyday event. And so they say, they, they speak, they say, a great prophet has arisen among us. In the Old Testament, a couple of instances, similar miracles were performed by great prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And so Jesus resuscitating this man, bringing him back from the dead, was the natural category to put him in. He's a great prophet. But then we see that the people make the statement, this statement, this is an important one. God has visited his people. This is the second time this language has been used in Luke's gospel. In chapter 1, verse 68, Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now back here, the crowds at this funeral are saying the same thing. But we can't take this to mean God has visited, and we don't know exactly this would be a very basic understanding of what visit means here by, by these people. But we can't just mean take this to mean that Jesus is stopping by for coffee and a quick hello. What we need to take this as is that Jesus is coming to set up shop. He's moving into the community. He's coming to take back territory that belongs to him. Because of what Revelation 21 verses 3 and 4 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's what Jesus is doing. He's making this a reality. God is not far off. He is near to us. He is near. He is close. Christmas tells us that God wasn't going to just stay far off. He was going to draw near to his people in order that he might dwell with them in intimate relationship for eternity. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God has visited his people and he's visiting his people to set up shop, to claim the territory that was, to take it back. This is not a part-time arrangement. This isn't just put him in the guest bedroom for a night or two. This is an eternal arrangement. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came into the world in order that we might live with him for eternity. The life that he brings is life without end. Eternal life. The life that he brings is with him. Not separate from him. He doesn't just give you eternal life and then be like, hey, I'll see you in a few hundred years. It's with him. In his presence. 
forever. This is the condescension of Jesus coming into the world to be amongst his people, to set up shop, to take the territory back. He brings us life without end and life with him. That leads us to a conclusion. Three things briefly this morning. Just direct application, hopefully for this Christmas season, as we consider what's written here. The first is this. I think we need to internalize this reality. Sin and its effects will bring grief to us in this life. This life is, in fact, full of sorrow and grief. And there are many of you in this room who are actively grieving currently. In this passage, the widow has lost her son. She's lost her husband. And again, there are many of us who are in similar situations. We have loved ones who have preceded us in death. And empty chairs around the table cause us to feel like our spirit is being crushed. But Jesus has compassion on those who mourn. And he understands directly what you feel. Isaiah 53.3 says that Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Sin is what leads to death. There is no question about it. Sin is, in fact, what leads to death. And since we are all polluted by sin, because we all sin willingly and openly, death is the result of that sin. And so for us, we must mourn as those who realize that the heart of our grief is a desire to have relief from and to be finally free from sin. The world we live in is still affected by sin, but Jesus' work on the cross means that those days are in fact numbered. At Jesus' second coming, grief will be no more because, again, Revelation 21, verse 4, the former things will have passed away. Grief, the mourning, the loss, the crushed in spirit emotions that you feel this morning are former things that will pass away at Christ's second coming. Concluding point two, Jesus cares about us even in life's routine situations. Jesus cares about us even in life's routine situations. A striking thing about what's described in this passage, despite the incredible miracle that Jesus performs by raising this young man from the dead, is just how normal the setup of this scene is. At least until Jesus shows up. Funerals happen all of the time. People go through this kind of difficulty all of the time. A quick glance at the obituaries in the paper will show you that there are many people in our community who are grieving in the same way that the widow was grieving here in this passage. There's nothing extraordinary about this setup of this passage. It's a sad picture, but it's a common one. But Jesus doesn't ignore the widow and just move on with his day. He doesn't just ignore the widow and move on with his day. He's genuinely interested in the emotion and the well-being of those involved. 
He becomes intimately involved in the whole event. From the widow who's mourning, to the man who who has died, to the crowd as a whole. He's ministering to everyone and taking everyone into account. He turns the whole event around entirely from grief to glorifying God. As we make our way through the Christmas season, you may need to hear the reminder that Jesus has not forgotten you. Maybe you're not in the midst of a season of mourning, but you just feel isolated. You feel like you're on your own and that, in fact, Jesus has forgotten you and that he cares nothing for your day-to-day life. Friends, this passage tells us the opposite. Jesus cares for everything and about everything that you're going through, the good things, the bad things, the neutral things. Jesus intimately cares about everything. Sometimes when we're suffering, we attempt to comfort ourselves by saying things like, people go through this sort of thing all the time and they wake up in the next day and they find a way to keep going. That's not the comfort that Jesus brings to us. It may be true, but your difficulty and your suffering or your grief is not unimportant to Jesus. It's not just a matter of waking up and keeping going in your own strength. It's a matter of relying on the one who has come to earth, condescended from heaven, who has made a way, who has dealt with sin and dealt ultimately with death. Jesus cares for you even when your life is par for the course. His caring isn't just a feeling he has towards you, but he takes action on your behalf. He brings life to a people marked by death. He brings comfort to people who mourn and are worried that the effects of sin will swallow them whole. There is no place that you might find yourself in your life where Jesus isn't intimately involved. Final concluding point this morning. The dwelling place of God is with man. The dwelling place of God is with man. In eternity past, God, Father, Son, Spirit, together decided that they would redeem a people for their possession. That they would have a bride for the Son in order that they might bring her into the fellowship that they experienced. The perfect, unending, eternal fellowship that they experienced from eternity past. And will forever. Friends, if you are in Christ, you are in fact part of that fellowship. The part of that unity with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The crowds who exclaimed in this passage, God has visited his people, spoke better than they even knew. Because right before this statement, they called Jesus a prophet. It's likely that they were just thinking that This is a representative of God who has come to us to share with us about who God is. 
But Jesus isn't just a prophet who represents God. He's not just an ambassador of the king. He is the king. He is God. And so Jesus' first visit was to prepare him, prepare things for his kingdom come. And at Christmas, Jesus came into the world to accomplish what was needed for his eternal reign among his people to bring his bride home into the fellowship that he has experienced the perfect unity between Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus the King will dwell with us forever. His dwelling place is in some far-off, heavenly, heavily fortified castle that none of us can breach. It's right here with us. And through coming to earth in the flesh and dying in our place, Jesus secures that eternity with him. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. In Christ, our future is with God, living with him. No threat of separation. Christ came to earth to fulfill what was required to make it all happen. Friends, God so loved the world that he sent Jesus into the world to die for the sins of the world so that he could once again dwell with us. That is at the heart of Christmas. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the picture of Jesus Christ in this passage. That there is nothing that we grieve, nothing that we mourn, nothing that we go through in this life that is too mundane for you to be intimately involved. God, would we rejoice in the reality that you have turned things around entirely. That the sin that was in our world because of our sinfulness, because of the sinfulness of others that impacts us, because of the curse of sin that was spoken in Genesis chapter 3. God, that we would now as your people recognize that Jesus came into the world to deal with it all. Not just some of it, not just a little bit, but with all of it in order that we might in fact dwell with you. God, would we look forward to the day where we will participate fully and without hindrance in the fellowship that you have within yourself, Father, Son, and Spirit. God, we thank you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. Amen.